welcome to City Breaks Bath, episode 13. Another idea for a day out from Bath, should you fancy a change. If you drive only about 45 minutes south, you will reach the ancient cathedral city of Wells. England's smallest city, in fact. A very beautiful place to look round. Several interesting things to do. Definitely a day out to be recommended. You can do it by public transport as well. There is a bus. I think it goes every couple of hours. It'll take you a little bit longer than an hour, but it certainly can be done. Wells is a city with an interesting history, with quite a few very interesting things to look round. You could pop in for half a day, but you certainly could spend the whole day there, if you want to take your time about things and enjoy it for what it is. If you're wondering why it's called Wells, that's because it had three wells. One in the marketplace, two within the grounds of the Bishop's Palace. So a place where water was plentiful and where then, of course, a settlement arose. The three wells feature on the city arms, along with a Latin motto which means something like the fullness that springs from this well. So, the briefest of looks at history, it was a Roman settlement. I'm sure they will have noticed the plentiful good drinking water. It was a place where an early Christian church was set up in Saxon times. But the first major date for our purposes in the Wells calendar was the year 1180, because that was the date when work began to improve the old Church of St Andrews, which was already there, and turn it into what we know today as Wells Cathedral. It was also the year when good King John, or possibly bad King John, granted the city its royal charter. And Wells became a place very well known for its church, and at the same time a bustling little market town. In the 17th century there were a number of occasions when what was happening nationally had a big effect on Wells, not least the ongoing difficulties between Catholics and Protestants, between traditional churchgoers and the new Puritans. And I found a wonderful description of this in a book called Wells, A Small City, written by Tony Scrace where he describes the ongoing disputes between Wells's traditional churchgoers who liked ceremonies and a good celebration, May Day for example, lots of festivities, and the much more Puritan faction, led in the extract I'm about to read by one John Hole, who thought things should be a lot more serious and sober and found all this frolicking too Catholic and too pagan. These are both things he actually said. I'm not quite sure how you can be both at once, but anyway, it certainly wasn't to his liking. And there's a great description of a few days in May in 1602, when things absolutely came to a head. Those who viewed May Day as an occasion for celebration were out in force before dawn that day. They had a drummer with them. They drummed their way down the street, making a lot of noise, where they were met by John Hole, who was a constable and he ordered them immediately to go home. They didn't think much of this, so they carried on, set their maypole up by the high cross, danced around it till eight o'clock, and he was not happy. He was even less happy a couple of days later, on a Sunday, no less, when the dancers were out from 5am, again accompanied by their drummer. They met John Hole, he ordered them to disperse, which they did, but as soon as the morning service was over, they resumed, went in fact to dancing and a drumming past his house, set up a bower for their musicians to use, had a picnic right by his house, and, as the writer Tony Grace says, quote, at about 1pm the serious dancing began. 
There were two fiddlers, there were two drummers. There was far too much jollity and merrymaking, and sure enough, out came John Hole and tried to arrest the fiddlers. And, as the author explains, this all had its roots in an argument that was going on at national level. This is how he explains it. Quote, Their argument repeated national debates on the nature of Sunday. Was it a day apart for prayer and contemplation, or were sports and pastimes allowed outside of the hours for divine service? He goes on to tell us that the fiddlers were arrested, and then they escaped. And later that day, during the hour of the next service, they were actually found playing cards. So, of course, they had to be arrested again. And all of this went on tit for tat for several days, until an afternoon, when tempers frayed, men were out armed with muskets and pistols, with swords, with daggers. Others had drums and fifes and trumpets. The Morris dancers were there, and they underlined their point by using as part of their dance rapiers and daggers. So you can just imagine that everybody would have been talking about this for months afterwards, probably taking sides and generally allowing ill-feeling against the other lot to bed in. Later in that century, 1642, came the Civil War, when Wells was quite badly affected, being occupied at different times both by the Royalists and by the Parliamentarians. The most serious incident was one known later as the Siege of Wells, when Wells was surrounded by parliamentarians with guns. One Colonel Strode had arrived with 2,000 men and 150 horses, and the Royalists were forced to evacuate the city, at which point the parliamentary troops set up home in the cathedral, even, we think, stabling their horses in there, and certainly causing a lot of damage, not least because they used some of these statues as targets for their firing practice. But the bloodiest event in Wells's history was a little later again, in 1685, all connected to something called the Monmouth Rebellion, again with its roots in religion. With a very Catholic King James on the throne, the Protestant Duke of Monmouth led a rebellion, much of which played out in the West Country. The rebel army attacked Wells Cathedral, lots of damage was done, some of the statues on the West Front were shot at, Others were crowbarred out of place. Windows were broken, the organ was smashed, and again horses stabled in the nave. In fact, the rebels not long after that were defeated at the Battle of Sedgemoor. Sedgemoor being only a few miles away from Wells. Lots of rebels were taken prisoner. Many of them were held in St Cuthbert's Church in Wells. And then they were tried in the Market Hall, which was in the marketplace. It's not there anymore. Tried by the fearsome Judge Jeffreys who saw 542 men in one day, found all but one of them guilty, sentenced 94 of them to be executed, and most of the rest to be transported to Australia. Eight of the condemned were hanged in wells. The others were taken to various towns all around the county, so that populations everywhere would see what would happen if you were to join the rebellion. There were hangings in Bath, in Froome, in Wincanton, Glastonbury, Shepton Mallet and many other towns. I read a booklet on this whole sorry tale called The Monmouth Rebellion in Wells by Anna Baines, and she recounts the story of a resident of Wells from the Times who knew of somebody who'd had a very lucky escape. And here's the story as she relates it. It is, by the way, partly in Somerset dialect. Okay, so the resident from the Times wrote, My uncle, he knew a man who came down with a dish of strawberries. Where be going with they, says he. 
to give in to King Monmouth, says he. Now you just take my advice, says he. Carin along back, or eat him yourself. And so he did. And the narrator added very truly, and so he escaped hanging. So just a reminder that anybody who had been found supporting the rebels in any way, even if it was only taking them some food, was running the risk of the most severe of punishments. And then a final moment when Wells played a part in the national history comes during the Napoleonic Wars, the late 1790s, early 1800s, when a guardhouse was set up in the road still known as Guardhouse Lane. The guardhouse was needed because as the war against the French was being fought, French soldiers and sailors were being captured, some of them being brought back to Britain, landed at ports on the south coast, and marched then, in this case, up to Bristol to be held at Stapleton Prison. But it wasn't a march that could be done in one day. They did about 20 miles each day, lodging en route, and one of the stopping-off points was Wells, hence the need for the guardhouse. And if you walk past it today, you'll see there's a blue plaque on the wall explaining this. So, if you decide to spend a day in Wells, what can you expect to see? It'll probably strike you straight away that this is an ancient city, because it's got a wall, or what's left of it, running around the inner part of the city in an area known as the Liberty of St Andrew. Inside the Liberty is the cathedral, the bishop's palace and the moat, and a beautiful cobbled street called Vicar's Close. More about that later. So this was an area that was controlled by the church, ran under its own laws, known as canon law, and where all the people connected with the church or with the cathedral lived. If you stand in the marketplace, you can see two entrances to what was originally the part enclosed by the wall. If you look towards the cathedral, the gate on your left is known as Penniless Porch, which was, and in fact still is, a place where people begged for money. And the right-hand gate leads through to the grounds of the Bishop's Palace, and that's known as the Bishop's Eye. Both these gates, Penniless Porch and the Bishop's Eye, were built in around 1450. Really, the main things to see in Wells, I would say, are the three things I've already mentioned, the Cathedral, Vicar's Close and the Bishop's Palace. But there are a few things worthy of a quick mention outside that area. So there's another magnificent church, Church of St Cuthbert, dating also from the 13th century. There are lots of pubs, but two particularly worth mentioning are the Swan Hotel, which served for many years as the Mayor's Banqueting Hall. We know that as early as the year 1613, a feast was held there in honour of Queen Anne of Denmark. We know that it became an important coaching inn and that other illustrious guests also stayed there. Two I could mention would be Henry VII and Winston Churchill. And the other pub or inn to look out for is the City Arms on the corner of Queen Street, which has been an inn since the 16th century but was also rather unusual because as well as being an inn, the very same building was the city jail, which was in operation until the 19th century and where some of the cells still exist. So it's very nice to have a look round the city, but certainly one of the main things you're probably going to want to do is visiting the cathedral. Built on land which had had previous Christian churches, but started in its present format towards the end of the 12th century. And actually, the first English cathedral to be built entirely in a new Gothic style, so with the pointed arches, the ribbed vaults, bigger windows than they'd had until that time. It is a grand and marvellous building, 
and certainly one of the most beautiful things about it is the west front, the bit which faces onto Cathedral Green and where the main entrance is. Although most days if you go on a visit, the way in is a little off to the side. Anyway, definitely stand in front, close enough to get a good look at the statues adorning the cathedral, all over the front of the cathedral, in fact. Most of them were carved between 1235 and 1245. They're one of the largest collections of statues like this anywhere in Europe, and there's a huge variety. Old Testament scenes, New Testament scenes, knights and ladies, kings and queens, bishops, saints, the twelve disciples, St Andrew, of course, the cathedral is dedicated to him, so he's right in the middle holding a cross. And one of the things to remember when you're looking at it is that when this was actually first built, it wasn't that lovely golden colour that you're looking at today. It was painted in the brightest of reds and blues and greens. We know they used costly pigments like vermilion and azurite. They used some gold leaf. Some of the figures wore white robes decorated with rich red and green linings, gloriously patterned, a real spectacle. Try to imagine too the way that processions would arrive from Cathedral Green into the cathedral in a great display of music and colour. On Palm Sunday, for example, they would reenact Christ's entry into Jerusalem. The procession would come from the green towards the cathedral, pause at the door, lay down palm leaves, and all of this to the accompaniment of a hidden choir and hidden trumpeters. Hidden where? Well, look up, and between the statues you'll see big round holes behind which is a platform on which the choir and the trumpeters could stand, so their singing and their music could burst forth out of the holes and down Cathedral Green. I'm sure you'll want to go inside as well, and as is so common with cathedrals, so much to see. A great long list would be not great listening really, so I'm just going to pick out one or two highlights. Do look up in the main body of the church at what's called today the scissor arches, the glorious crisscross pattern of the vaults. Do look out for the font, because that's the oldest object in the whole cathedral, dating from Saxon times and believed to have been used in the Saxon church, which was on this site long before the cathedral was ever thought of. And particularly, keep an eye out for the clock, the original medieval clock made in 1392. Actually two parts, one of which is inside the cathedral and one on the same wall just outside so you need to look out for both, really. An incredible 24-hour clock, beautifully decorated, so, for example, little gold stars mark the minutes of every hour. And in addition to telling you the time, if you know how to read it, you can also work out how long it would be since the last new moon. And perhaps best of all, especially if you have children with you, is the fact that there are four horsemen who ride around a tower in a model just above the clock face, as if they're in a tournament. This plays out every quarter of an hour, and one of the four, sadly, is always the one who gets struck down. If you're looking at the outside version of the clock, you'll find two knights striking the bells. There's lots more to look at. Another highlight is definitely the choir, with its 14th century wooden stalls. Each one has a wooden carving underneath, a human, an animal, a man spearing a dragon, for example. And each carving is supporting a ledge, so that the clergy could lean on it and have a rest, even though they weren't actually going to sit down during the service. Look out for the glorious Jesse window as well. 
stained glass window depicting Christ's family tree, so starting from Jesse and his son King David, and then every generation after that, right along until Jesus. There's a separate chapel, known as the Lady Chapel, built in honour of Mary, and ransacked by Puritan soldiers in the 17th century. I think such worship of Mary was something they would have seen as, quote, too Catholic. There's lots more outside the main body of the church, the cloisters, an upper floor with the library in it and the schoolroom for the choir. The library today has about 6,000 books, some of them still chained to the book presses, just as they were in medieval times. But in the middle of all of this, you do need to remember it's a working church where prayers are said at least twice a day and where every day in term time, you can go to choral evensong sung by the cathedral choir. Dates and times on the website. So the cathedral is probably the number one building you want to visit in Wells, but there are two other things you really shouldn't miss. If you come out of the cathedral and turn right and cross over the street, you will come to Vickers Close, a little street believed to be the only completely medieval street left in England. The idea for building Vickers Close came from one Bishop Ralph in 1348. He had to take charge of all the vicars that worked at the cathedral and he required them to attend eight services a day to go to all the chancellor's lectures, etc, etc. And he thought the whole thing would be easier if they lived pretty much on site. Also, he's recorded as having given another reason, which was rather nicely worded. I quote, that they should be removed from the temptations of secular life. So a street was built of houses for them to live in, and it was even linked to the cathedral by a little bridge going across the road overhead and known as the Chain Gate Bridge. Originally, Vickers Close had 42 little houses, sort of one-up, one-down sort of houses, and a chapel right at the end. It has all belonged to the cathedral, but you're very free to walk up and down it, and if it's open, to visit the chapel too. In the 16th century, the number of vicars was reduced and it was decided that vicars would be allowed to marry, so the houses were knocked together to make fewer, larger ones, which would be suitable for vicars and their wives and their families. And they and other people connected with the church have been living there ever since. Here's the guidebook. Quote, Today, together with the choristers, the vicars choral sing services every day in term time. They still live in the close, as do other members of the Cathedral Foundation, including the organist and master of the choristers. Some of the houses are used by the Cathedral School, which has a continuous history since its foundation as the medieval choir school. Once you've seen Vickers Close, if you retrace your steps past the front of the Cathedral and out towards the marketplace, and then turn left into the Bishop's Eye Gate, you will arrive at the other unmissable site, and that's the Bishop's Palace. Built in the 13th century by one Bishop Jocelyn, both a building and a set of lovely gardens that you can look round. When you go inside, if you visit the conference room and the drawing room and imagine them as one big hall, which they were in medieval times, then what you're seeing in your mind is the Great Hall, where Edward III and his Queen Philippa and their baby son, who grew up to be the Black Prince, all spent Christmas in the year 1331. Rather more macabrely, it's also the room where the Abbot of Glastonbury, Richard Whiting, was tried for treason when he refused to have his abbey demolished as Henry VIII wanted and sentenced to death. 
Again, lots and lots of things to look at. So just picking out some highlights. There is something called the Coronation Cope in a glass case, a wonderful decorated cloak, really, which was worn by the Bishop of Bath and Wells at the coronation of Edward VII. And again, I think after some alterations to fit a different sized bishop, in 1953 at the coronation of our Queen Elizabeth. There's a painting on the wall nearby of Elizabeth's coronation and another explanatory note saying that the bishops of Bath and Wells have been present at every single coronation in England since that of Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, in 1189. So definitely an exhibit that gives you a sense of the history of the place and of the importance of the bishops of Bath and Wells. Something else that's interesting to look at is the Glastonbury chair, made in 1504. The first of its kind, apparently, but so well made that people copied it ever afterwards, and it's got a rather sad inscription on it, because it's dedicated to its owner, John Arthur, who was one of the Glastonbury monks executed in 1539, alongside his abbot, Abbot Whiting, because they refused to stand by and watch their abbey being demolished. And the inscription on the chair reads, John Arthur, monk of Glastonbury, God save him, grant him peace, Lord, so praise God. When you get to the long gallery, another long thin room on the upper floor, you'll notice that there are portraits in there of dozens of previous bishops of Bath and Wells. It's also very nice to look round the gardens, 14 acres or so, one of those lovely gardens where all sorts of little sections keep arising with different sorts of plants in them, described in their own leaflet as, quote, wonderfully diverse planting, formal Dutch style, topiary, water gardens, an arboretum, the contemporary quiet garden, the romantic ruined great hall, and the new dragon's lair play area, designed around the legend of a 13th century dragon which was killed by the bishop who built the palace. It's very nice to walk round the moat as well. If you're wondering why a bishop's palace, which isn't actually a castle or a place for war, needed a moat, it's because the palace was built originally on marshy land, rather prone to flooding, and one of the bishops, Bishop Ralph in fact, who was bishop between 1329 and 1363, decided that the thing to do was channel the water into a moat. That would be useful, it would be a reservoir, it would act as some kind of defence, and it could be used to power water mills. It didn't stop there. A rampart was built, round towers and a gatehouse, and a drawbridge to get in and out. Although that is no longer there, it's been replaced by a stone bridge. But the most interesting thing about the moat is the swans. These swans have a publicity life all of their own. There's a blog about them. There's a webcam set up so that you can watch them. And what's special about them is the fact that they have been trained to ring a little bell, which you can see if you look carefully to the left of the gatehouse, hanging from the wall on a rope. So they ring this bell when they want to be fed. It's thought that a bishop's daughter in the 1850s first got the idea that she would teach the swans to ring a bell when they wanted food, and that this tradition has been carried out ever since. Swans are always nice to look at, aren't they? But if you go along at the right time, which is between one and two generally, hopefully you might actually see the swans ringing their bell. But if you miss it, you can find out all about them by consulting the blog, which is on the bishopspalace.org.uk site. I think you'll find the right section if you go for forward slash attractions, forward slash swans, 
and it's utterly delightful reading. So the diary for the current year, 2020, for example, has lots of photographs and it takes you through events from the spring and through into summer, describing when they're nest building, when the eggs are laid, when they hatch. This particular year, eight eggs hatched. You're kept updated about the incubation and then, of course, the exciting day when they begin to hatch. There's information too about training the swans to ring the bells and about the progress of the cygnets to independence. This being nature, there's drama too, but it really does make for the most charming reading. So here's the entry, for example, for May the 1st, 2nd and 3rd. The last egg hatched later on Sunday. Grace and Gabriel, I forgot to mention that all the swans have names chosen in a public vote. Okay, so Grace and Gabriel, that's the parents, had been doing a great job at protecting their new little family. While Grace took most of the cygnets off for a swim this morning, Gabriel remained at the nest with the little one who was too small to swim just yet. Unfortunately, as the day progressed, it was clear that the last little cygnet to hatch was just too weak and it has not survived. This afternoon, Grace took the seven cygnets off on the moat again before a nap back at the nest. The seven have been feeding while on the moat and all seem to be doing well. They will probably spend the next few days in and out of the nest before spending more time on the moat. As they get stronger, they will venture further along the moat and hopefully anyone out for a walk might be able to spot them. Then a week later there was high drama when it was noticed that one of the cygnets had gone missing. A search was held, nothing was found, but the next day a member of the public got in touch to say that she had found the cygnet on her drive, taken it to the vets where he was cared for overnight, and here he was being reunited with the rest of the family at one o'clock the next day. The vet suspected that he'd met a cat somewhere along on his travels, so everyone was very happy that he was well enough to be back. But even that wasn't the end of the story, because a week later again they wrote, Another busy week on the moat. After little Gulliver returned from his adventures, he spent the night on the moat, but unfortunately his return was causing some unrest. Gulliver was removed from the moat and was collected by the Swan Sanctuary, who will care for him, along with other cygnets and swans. We are sorry to see this plucky little cygnet leave, but it was the best course of action for him. I do think this wonderful swan soap opera should be much better known. Okay, other things to visit in Wells. I want to give a mention to Wells Museum, which is just between the cathedral and Vickers Close, so absolutely en route, with all sorts of collections. There's a large collection of local minerals and fossils, for example, information about Wookie Hole Caves, and the Witch of Wookie Hole. There's a statuary exhibition where I saw a lovely little set of four statues which told a story, almost cartoon style, and are examples of the kind of statue actually up on the cathedral, but so far up that you can't see all the details. So here they are. The first one shows a man with a carving knife stealing grapes and looking back guiltily over his shoulder. The second statue then shows a woodman with an axe pointing out the thieves to a farmer who's brought his own weapon, a pitchfork. In the third little scene, the farmer catches the thief by the hair and swings back his pitchfork. And in the fourth one, the story culminates with the farmer giving the thief a painful blow on the head. There's a room of embroidered samples done by school pupils in the 18th and 19th century. There are photographic displays of citizens of Wells from the 19th and 20th century. 
When I went, there were two special exhibitions, one on caving in the Mendip Caves in places like Wookie, and one was a recreation of a World War I trench. More about that in a minute. And then finally, I noticed they had the embalmed first swan who rang the moat bell for food in the 19th century. Linked to the trench display, there is a memorial outside the museum, a large stone, to a very well-known resident of Wells, on which the inscription reads, The Last Fighting Tommy, Private Henry John Patch, brackets, Harry, 17th of June 1898 to the 25th of July 2009, aged 111, fought in the Battle of Passchendaele during the 1914-18 war, freeman of the city of Wells, also representing all the brave young men lost in the Great War. Harry Patch was, in the last few years of his life, very well known in Wells. He had fought during World War I at Passchendaele on the Western Front, been injured in a terrible shell explosion which killed three of his comrades. He'd also fought, as that generation often did, in World War II as well, and he'd lived the rest of his life back in his native Somerset, working as a plumber and then retiring. It's said that he barely spoke about the war for most of his life, not in fact until he reached the age of a 100. But at that point, there were various things which happened which brought him to public attention. He was televised, for example, in November 2004, when he was 106, meeting a German soldier who had also fought at Passchendaele and was 107. Harry Patch said about that, I was a bit doubtful before meeting a German soldier. Herr Kuntz is a very nice gentleman, however. He is all for a united Europe and peace, and so am I. And a rather nice detail, they had exchanged gifts when they met. So the ex-German soldier had brought along a tin of biscuits, and Harry Patch gave him a bottle of Somerset cider in return. In November 2008, Harry Patch was one of three remaining veterans who were at the Cenotaph in London for the Remembrance Service. If you saw it, you may well remember three very elderly men being brought in wheelchairs up to the Cenotaph to lay their wreaths. Harry Patch was also a stalwart of the Wells Poppy Appeal every year. He gave talks in schools, so there'll be young adults in Somerset today who can tell you that somebody who fought in World War I came to their school just over a decade ago and told them all about it. He wrote his autobiography, known as The Last Fighting Tommy, and he became really a symbol for the whole country of all those who lost their lives in both world wars, but particularly in the First World War. And he died in 2009, his funeral was held in Wells Cathedral, and on that day at 11am, the bells of the cathedral rang out 111 times, so once for each year of his life. At his request, the theme of the service was peace and reconciliation, and his coffin was brought in by eight soldiers, two from Britain, in fact from his regiment, the Rifles, two from Belgium, two from France, and two from Germany. He had particularly left instructions that there should be no guns at the funeral, so the soldiers didn't bring their ceremonial weapons, and the whole thing was really Harry Patch's last message to the world. There were over a thousand tickets for members of the public, some of whom queued up overnight on Cathedral Green in order to make sure that they could attend and pay their respects to him. And just lastly, there is in fact a second well-known person commemorated in Wells because it's where she was born and educated, 
and that's the athlete Mary Rand. She won a gold medal for the long jump at the Tokyo Olympics in 1964, breaking the world record and becoming, in fact, the first female ever from Great Britain to win an Olympic gold in a track or field event. All of this at only 24. And so, of course, the city of Wales very much wanted to record her achievements. And they had the idea for something that would make you realise exactly how far she had jumped when you look at it. If you go into the market square, if you stand facing the cathedral end, on the left-hand side, on the pavement, you'll see a plaque with the five Olympic rings on it and more plaques measuring out the length of her jump, which was, in fact, 22 feet and 2 inches. And rather amusingly, I read somewhere that at the time, the town clerk, one Harold Dodd, had written to Mary, or rather he'd sent her a telegram to say congratulations, and he wrote that again in Somerset dialect, saying something like, quote, Us be terrible proud of ye. So, all in all then, a lovely little town to visit, lots to see, lots to visit, lots to think about. And just as one last idea, if you like walking, you will notice as soon as you get there that Wells is surrounded by a beautiful countryside, and there's a website from which you can download maps and instructions for a variety of walks. I think the shortest one I found was 45 minutes long, the longest two and a half hours, so absolutely something for everybody. And the place where you need to look is www.wellswalkingtours.co.uk. I think you could spend a whole day in the city anyway without the walk, but certainly that is an extra idea for something to do there if the weather's at all remotely kind. Okay, so that's Wells then, 45 minutes from Bath, and a very nice day out, either just for its own sake, or possibly if you want to rush about a little bit more, in tandem with a visit to another little town which is only five or six miles away, and which in fact will be the subject of the episode next week, the last episode in the series, another place where you could have a whole day out from Bath, or, as just mentioned, in combination maybe the morning in Wells and the afternoon in Glastonbury. You may well have heard of Glastonbury as an ancient settlement, as a place of myth and legend, as a historical site with its wonderful abbey, or rather ruined abbey, or possibly most of all and coming more up to date because of its music festival, Glastonbury Festival. Anyway, next week's episode will deal with all of those things. And I hope very much that you'll be there for that. But for the moment, I'm going to thank you very much for listening. Hope that you found something of interest for your time. And say goodbye. <laughs>